This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Kind of feels like a week for new beginnings. It's episode 228 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. The reason I say that is that we're kind of going to be talking about a lot of things that are being given new life. As a matter of fact, this week and go back to San Diego Comic-Con and my interviews from the DC Superhero Girls press room. Shea Fontana not going to be involved in the new animated series. It's going to be on Cartoon Network, so we'll talk with the new creative team. Also, Greg Griffin, who actually is going to be back involved as Wonder Woman. Nicole Sullivan, going to be the new Supergirl. We'll hear from them as well and find out how different this new version of DC Superhero Girls is going to be from the one that we remember. Also, the new Jack Ryan series is going to be coming up on Amazon Prime Video from Amazon Studios. I'll give you my spoiler-free thoughts on the first episode only of that show and Justice League Dark came back from dc comics last month gonna jump into issue two as a matter of fact why wait let's do that next it's what we're reading we'll kick it off with justice league dark number two on the down and nerdy podcast i'm writer margaret scott and this is the down and nerdy podcast 
power on that tablet or your laptop, how about dragging out the long box? Because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And Justice League Dark number two out this past week from DC Comics. James Tinnen the fourth on the writing. Alvaro Martinez Bueno on the pencils. Raul Fernandez on the inks. Brad, a- Brad Anderson doing the colors and Rob Lee on the letters. Now, I'm going to do a few spoilers here from issue one since it is already out so if you haven't read it yet just skip ahead just a tad bit and then i won't have any spoilers for issue two though magic is dying i mean in a manner of speaking anyway we find that out and we also find out in the first issue that zatanna's magic is really backwards i mean it's typically backwards but this is a whole different kind of backwards it's just not working at all it's really out of whack and wonder woman kind of saves the day in issue one and she's realized that something's been going on with magic, that something's wrong. And she's trying to recruit a team, and nobody's really taking her up on her offer. She doesn't understand why everybody's turning her down. So that's kind of where issue two picks up, is where right at the end of issue one, you see Zatanna and Swamp Thing kind of show up. And that's where this second issue picks up. So they need to find answers. So they actually go to someone that they think is going to be able to tell them what's going on here. And this really isn't a spoiler because the dude's on the cover of this issue. It is Dr. Fate. Now, once they do get to the Tower of Fate, we do get backstory on the the origins of magic itself. And we get in some information on who the other kind might be. Of course, we find out about them in the first issue as well. Now, what I didn't expect is who is behind this whole thing or who has set everything in motion. And that is the biggest spoiler of issue two. And actually something I didn't think we'd get this early in the story. And to me, it is super interesting and something that I did not see coming at all. Now, it does kind of help to know what's been going on a little bit with Dr. Fate and what's been going on with the character in the last year in the comics to kind of understand what's going on here. I mean, you don't really, it's not absolutely necessary, but it would be more impactful if you, if you understand what's been going on with the character. So then that way it'll make a little bit more sense. Now there is something else going on here as well that I'll kind of tease a little bit. And there's something going on with Swamp Thing and he's keeping it from the team. He hasn't told them yet. And that's, that's been a big thorn in, in Wonder Woman's side is the lack of transparency from everybody that she's trying to recruit on her team. And yes, John Constantine is part of this book, but it's more of like in the shadows. He shows up when he wants to throw a guilt trip on somebody or something like that, or when he just wants to see what's going on sort of thing. And that's one of the things that we get with he and Swamp Thing. And I do actually love that character interaction between the two, of course, where with Constantine debuting in a Swamp Thing comic years ago. It just feels right to have those two together. Another good, interesting dynamic is the one between Wonder Woman and Zatanna because they don't exactly get along at first. And I really like how James Tanner IV in this story kind of also talks about the magic community itself and how, you know, they're, they're kind of their own little thing and, you know, they like to fix their own problems. They don't really like interference from anybody else, anybody coming in to their realm. But Wonder Woman, you know at her core just wants to help when she sees that there's a problem. And actually her presence in this book and in this story really makes sense after the first few pages of this book. So if you were on the fence, if you love Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman, but you're thinking, why is she in a justice league dark book? This doesn't make any sense. makes perfect sense. Once you see what happens in the first few issues. So that gets explained 
really, 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 really quickly. I never had a problem with it. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. The art is next level good in this book, guys. I'm not going to lie. I mean, you've got you've got Man Bat in there. Everything that happens at the Tower of Fate and all the imagery there is just stunning. There's so many wow moments throughout these first couple of issues. I just couldn't possibly even go into all of it. So, I mean, anytime there's going to be a Justice League dark title, I'm going to check it out because I loved the new 52 run. Despite what's, I mean, it wasn't all good, but there were certainly great moments about it. And James 10 and the 4th just brings something to this story. It's almost like the vibe that I got when I was reading his Detective Comics runs that, that was just, they were just so great. And he, he just knows how to handle a team dynamic, especially kind of an uneasy team dynamic, but make it flow so, so well. So this is a poll for me. Going to definitely keep reading Justice League Dark from DC Comics. Here's something that's a little bit of a preview of what's to come. Olivia Twist, number one from Burger Books and Dark Horse Comics, which is written by Darren Strauss. First venture into comics for Darren, by the way. Adam Dalva also helps with the writing. Emma Vicelli does the art and Lee Lorridge on the colors. Now, if you're wondering, yes, this is a new take on the classic Dickens story of Oliver Twist, but with a female lead and some other characters changed throughout the way as well. So this kind of starts out as a refugee story and then eventually becomes the familiar story that you're kind of familiar with if, you, if you've read Oliver Twist with the workhouses and camps and things like that. And while there are some familiar characters... To the, that are in the original story that are in this one, they are reimagined. I can definitely tell you that right now. As a matter of fact, this book actually goes out of its way a couple of times to point out that this is, quote-unquote, my story, talking about Olivia, who sort of narrates the book as well. And it says to forget everything that you know of this story as it is. So while there are winks and nods here and there, and while the, we do see some familiar names, and it follows some familiar beats... It's definitely a newer story. The world is more modern for sure. Actually reminded me when I when when I was seeing how the world was put together, reminded me a lot of how the world looked in Ready Player One. You might even throw some fifth element kind of winks and nods in there in, in places. So it's definitely based in a more modern world, but we've yet to fully flesh that out. Just yet, I think more of that's going to be coming in later issues. There's also a lot of character building for Olivia throughout this book and world building in the first issue as well. We get to find out kind of the state that London is in now in this new modern world and, you know, who's pulling the strings behind the scenes and things like that. So, again, it's it's kind of Ready Player One asking that you know who the the, the top company and the top guy at that company is that kind of making things move or not move, depending on your perspective. The art in this book is absolutely gorgeous. And actually, I don't know if this is going to make sense or not, but follow me on this. It actually manages to kind of balance a modern look with an old world charm. And I know that that sounds kind of quotey or whatever, but that's the best way that I can possibly think to describe it. So you've got this modern look, but you're also telling a classic story too. And it manages to kind of weave its way through the, both of those worlds. So I thought the art was exactly what it needed to be in the story. As far as the character is concerned, Olivia really comes across as very likable, and you really do root for her by even the middle of this issue. I, I would say push that back even further towards the, front, to, towards the beginning of the issue, especially you do get the backstory of what happens to her and how she becomes, spoiler alert, 
an orphan, just in case you're not familiar with the story of Oliver Twist. You kind of see how that happens. And again, a twist on how that actually happens as well. So it'll be interesting to see in future issues exactly how much this story kind of changes or how it actually follows along with the Charles Dickens Oliver Twist story and see how many winks and nods there are there as well. This is another poll for me. You're going to get your chance to pre-order this book. As a matter of fact, if you want to just pre-order it, I'll have a link up down in nerdypodcast.com. Just go to the page for this episode. Just click on the link right there and you can pre-order Olivia Twist from Burger Books and Dark Horse Comics. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. Up next, going to give a spoiler-free review and a first look at Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan from Amazon Prime Video. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Griffin Newman from The Tick, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Looks like we got our assignment a little bit early because Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan does not hit Amazon Prime Video until August the 31st, but I got a first look at the show, so I want to give you my spoiler-free thoughts on just the first episode to kind of give you an idea of what's going on here. So again, very, very spoiler-free. This very much does feel like a reboot of the Jack Ryan character, who is being played by John Krasinski, by the way. Now, he's an up-and-coming CIA analyst at this point, so he's definitely a little bit green, and that's actually pointed out in this first episode as well at one point with he and his boss. Now, he's kind of his job is really kind of track swift transactions. He actually has a Wall Street background, so he's following money, and he's assigned to the Yemen region. Now, speaking of his boss, I don't really get off to the best start. There's actually a funny moment in this episode where it's one of those it's one of those tropes where you know you meet the boss outside of work before he you know he's your boss and something happens the boss by the way name is James Greer who's being played by Wendell Pierce and the interesting thing about Greer is that he's kind of been assigned back to headquarters because something went down in his career that could have easily gotten him fired but he's been being given a second chance so that that's kind of hinted to but we don't really dig too deep into that in this first episode we do get to see some interesting interactions between he and Ryan and and Ryan though that eventually leads to a field assignment and and again that's not really a spoiler because it's in the actual description of the show on on Amazon so now kind of what happens from here is the perfect setup to where the rest of the season is going. I, that much I can tell you. You know, you pair that with how the first episode kind of starts and you pretty much have all the information you need going forward right there in the first episode. So, I mean, while there are still some mysteries that need to be solved, I'm not saying that you get all the answers in the first episode. You get everything you need to either be interested in this show right off the bat or not. I can tell you that much right now. You're either going to love what you see and say, man, I can't wait for the rest of the season or you're not, and you might just be out. I usually give anything three episodes. But for me, this is one of those things where this this show will grab you at the beginning, or it won't. And I'll tell you my feelings here towards the end. Let's get back into the show here for just a second, though. Krasinski actually very much makes the character his own. This is not the Jack Ryan that you've seen in, uh, in other portrayals. I can tell you that much. He really brings more of a charm to the character instead of that confidence that we've seen portrayed previously now he's very very likable at least to me he was and in a, in a way there's times where he's even though he's really green he's really kind of cooler than the other side of the pillow but there is 
and I don't want to spoil this, but there is a very interesting aspect to his character to where obviously you know that that he's, you know, there's the whole, you know, I'm just an analyst thing, but there's definitely more to it than that. And there's a part of that other side of his life that, that I'm very interested to see how much that gets explored in future episodes. So again, it's something I don't want to spoil, but I, I think it's very smart that this is being brought to light in this series. And I hope we do see more of it. Now, I will say this as well. The show does have a few tropes in this first episode, but at the same time, it does feel very authentic. There, There's a lot of, you know, I won't say a lot of interagency stuff, but you kind of get to see how things might work. And I'm not saying this is exactly how they work because I don't have the clearance for that. But, I'm, you know, it, it, I can't say that that's how the day-to-day will go. And even in the field, I can't say how those operations will, will go. But it just felt very authentic to me. It didn't feel, you know, hokey, but but there were a few tropes in the show that you see a lot in these kinds of shows. I will say this about the villain, though, and I won't give away anything about that either. The villain, or, I mean, you want to call them the threat, that that's also a valid description. It feels very legit, and it really brings an interesting motive, but also a familiar motive that you will know right away. But then... Once you realize who everybody is, there's a light bulb moment if you've been paying attention throughout this first episode. So I will say this. I I will say that I liked this show. I liked this episode more than I thought I would because as someone who's kind of leery of reboots and relaunches and things like that, this kind of feels like a character that, to me, always fit better in TV. And I'm not saying that Harrison Ford didn't have some great moments as Jack Ryan in the movies, because I think if you're if you're looking at a gold standard for this character and for these Tom Clancy stories, it's absolutely positively Harrison Ford, and I would never go against that. But at the same time, it, if you're going to honor that character and do this right, this is kind of the way to do it on television, because now you've, you've you're giving yourself the chance. Because the the first episode of this show is a little bit over an hour long. And, and the, the typical movie back when Harrison Ford was playing this character was a little bit less than two hours. So now you really get a chance to flesh out this story and really dive deep into not only the operations themselves, but what the, what the, villain has, what the villain's plans are and how they're going to execute that and then how in turn that's going to be stopped and how you pick up the pieces when something goes wrong and the evolution of of the Jack Ryan character as well, going from analyst and morphing into a role of something more, which ultimately it seems like that's what's going to happen. It happened to Harrison Ford. Why wouldn't that happen in this case as well? So I was just very interested to see how this was going to play out. And I was not expecting to get as much as we got in the first episode. You got you got some humor in there. You get to find out plenty about who Jack Ryan is and was at some point in his life. You get to see his co-workers at Langley as well. So I, I thought that that was really interesting and see their, seeing their early interactions. And the Greer story really intrigues me as well. If Hopefully we find out a little bit more about what happens with him. And you get to find out how legit he really is too. It really early on. I was surprised that we got to see that as well. And there's some other characters mixed in. But seeing the backstory of what's going on with the villain and a couple of surprises that were mixed in with that as well, 
I can't wait to see where this goes. And that's kind of why I wanted to stop at reviewing this first episode, because it very much encapsulated, here's who we are as a show, right here. We're going to put it right down on the table, and you're going to love this right away, or you're not. That's my impression. I don't know how you're going to feel when you see it, but I was super interested in this. And I wasn't expected to be as interested as I actually was. That was the crazy thing. I knew I would probably like this show, but at the same time, I was drawn in by pretty much every part of this story. And for a reboot, that doesn't really happen very often. And and that could be a credit to the, the, the people behind the show. It could also be a credit to John Krasinski, who really brought a different Jack Ryan character to life. And everything just felt new, but at the same time, on familiar grounds, but you're giving me a different story, and I really like that. So I can't wait to see what's going on with the rest of season one of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime Video. If you want to watch the show, I'll put up a link on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can go see it for yourself. Actually, since I'm only reviewing the first episode, I don't really want to give this a rating, but I will say definitely watch this show. I don't feel like giving this a rating until I can do it for the entire season or at least half the season. So keep an eye out for an updated review that I'm going to... I'll try and write an updated review at downandnerdypodcast.com. Maybe we'll even try and score an interview for the show as well for next week. But this will not be the last time you hear Jack Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan talked about on this show. I can promise you that. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tainment and my spoiler-free review of the first episode of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime Video. Up next, some nerd news to get to and a lot more, so let's do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Matt Lesher from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We're going to start out with something either really happy or really sad, depending on your perspective, because it's time for nerd news. And I debated on whether or not to talk about this topic, but it's getting so much chatter, I couldn't avoid it. And yes, and this is either going to make you, real again, really upset or really happy. The Big Bang Theory is going to end in 2019 now before i get into the whole elephant in the room here now the details warner brothers has announced along with cbs according to entertainment weekly that the show will end after its 12th season in 2019 and the reports are that jim parsons was just ready to say goodbye he was ready for the show to end and and walk away and that's why the show is ending there's also multiple reports that was that were saying that he was offered 50 million dollars to stay and decided again that the show just needed to come to an end. So you you can either say that he was selfish or you can applaud him for turning down the money. I mean, there's a thousand different angles 
that you can take on this, but but let's just talk about this for a second because maybe you hear the words Big Bang Theory and it just plunges right into the depths of your soul of hatred. Maybe you just dislike the show that much. And and that's been a topic of conversation on the show before as to whether or not you like the Big Bang Theory or you hate it with a fiery passion. I've never really heard somebody that was in the middle. Now, I, to me, I, I don't think... That, I mean, I'm not in the hate category, not only for the show, but just in general. I don't think, you know, having that kind of hatred for something, for a television show or, or something of that nature. I don't know. I mean, like, I've never liked Captain Planet. When I go as far as to say I hate Captain Planet, I think hate's a strong word. I, I'm not a fan of the, of, the, of the Captain Planet cartoon. Sorry, it's just, it was never for me, and it has nothing to do with anything political or anything. I just never really liked the show. So there are, I've talked to many scores of people that just hate the Big Bang Theory. And then there's others that love the Big Bang Theory. Now, I will explain why I have liked the Big Bang Theory in the past. And and one of the reasons is that when, when I was in college, I had a group in college and, and it was essentially a lot of the characters in that Big Bang Theory group remind me of the group that I had in college. And, I, and if any of my friends are listening, no, I'm not going to sit here and name, well, this person was this person, this person was this person. That's who reminds me. No, I'm not going to do that on this show. I'm not even going to say who I would consider myself in, in one of those characters. But I will say this. That was one of the things that made me gravitate towards the show. And yes, we'd, we'd talk about nerdy stuff from time to time or sports or what have you. And and everybody would exhibit, you know, certain people would exhibit certain traits from characters from the show. And that's one of the things that made me gravitate towards the show. And the nerdy stuff didn't hurt either. Now, now here's the deal, though. I understand that maybe you feel like the show perpetuated a stereotype on nerd culture. Maybe even mocking nerd culture at times if you want to go that far. And maybe... You know, it went a little bit too far. And sure, there were tropes and stereotypes. And, and I will admit, for me too, sometimes, sometimes they were frustrating. But, but to me, it's a sitcom. I mean, sitcoms are going to blow things out of proportion. That's just what sitcoms really do. They, you know, as much as sitcoms try to act like they're, they're supposed to be relatable and based in real life, they're, they're really not. And even, even in me saying that it reminds me of my group that I had in college, it's not exactly... Like that, obviously, certain things were embellished. Embellished for television is how sitcoms were based. If it was real life, it would be a reality show. And even that, 99 times out of 100, isn't real life. So I just never really understood understood the vitriol for it. And, I mean, maybe it's it's upsetting that this is one of the reasons that nerd culture became mainstream was because of the Big Bang Theory, whether you want to admit it or not. That is one of the things that made nerd culture mainstream. And maybe you didn't want nerd culture to go mainstream, but I've said this on the show a million times. If nerd culture didn't go mainstream, whether you want to believe it or not, there's a lot of things we would not have gotten if that didn't happen. Would the MCU have happened? Probably the MCU would have still happened. Would, Would that have been enough to give us all of these TV shows, movies, animated movies, animated series, comics. I mean, a lot of things. I'm not saying that the Big Bang Theory was solely responsible for it. Absolutely not. That's a ridiculous thing to say. But I'm saying, whether you like to admit it or not, it helped. I strongly believe that it did help. And maybe you think I'm an idiot 
for saying that. And that's fine. That's your opinion. And you're allowed to hate the show. I'm not even saying don't hate the show. If you want to hate the show, that's your opinion. I, there are plenty of, every show has someone that hates the show with a fiery passion for whatever reason. I mean, there there are people that still hate the Arrowverse on CW because they think it's too teenage-ish or that it focuses too much on relationships, things like that. And I understand that. If that's why you want to hate the shows, fine. I disagree with you, but fine. And I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily love the Big Bang Theory because it's steeped in nerd culture and I and I feel the realism coming off of it. No, that's not it at all. And and not everything about it is funny either. It's just because I happen to like the show doesn't mean I've liked every episode. I actually haven't watched the show the last couple of seasons. I just kind of got tired of it. So I, I sort of stopped watching it. I, it didn't catch my interest anymore. So, I mean, I, I kind of grew out of the show as well. But what I'm saying is, is that it's not a bad thing if it helped us get other things that we ended up enjoying. And whether you want to admit it or not, the Big Bang Theory did play a role in that. And that that will still be going on long after the Big Bang Theory is gone. But whether you love it or you hate it, part of you has to admit that it definitely helped bring nerd culture mainstream and maybe even gave gave you a few things that you love despite your hate for the Big Bang Theory. Sticking in the TV realm, and even Warner Brothers as well, news dropped this week, according to The Hollywood Reporter, that Superman would be returning to DC television for the big crossover that's going to be happening, and Lois Lane is going to be coming to the crossover as well. Let's get to the details first. The crossover is going to start on December the 9th with The Flash, and then on December the 10th with Arrow, and December the 11th with Supergirl. So it's only going to be the three parts with the Flash and Supergirl kind of swapping nights there. And then, of course, you know, Tyler Hoken going to come back as Superman for all three episodes, by the way, he's going to be in. No casting announcement yet for Lois Lane. Before I get to Lois, I just want to say from a fanboy perspective, how cool is it going to be to see Flash alongside Superman, Green Arrow alongside Superman, of course, their history, you know, as in certain stories and comics that, you know, I won't get into too deep here, but it's just going to be neat to see all of these characters next to each other. I mean, seeing Supergirl and Superman already was already neat enough, but to, to see almost like a Justice League type feel, I think it's going to be really, really neat. And I cannot wait to just see just visually see that on DC TV. Now, Lois Lane, her presence might have me even more excited than anything else. And there's really no sense in trying to guess the whole casting thing. I don't think anybody said, I bet Ruby Rose is going to be Batwoman. I think that's going to happen. I don't I don't remember anybody calling that one. So I'm tired of trying to call these casting announcements because it seems like I'm never even close. And then when they do make the casting and go, oh yeah, I could see that. That seems like it would be a good move. I guess we'll have to wait and see how that works out. So, I mean, given the history of strong women in the Arrowverse, though. I'm really looking forward to seeing how she's presented. I mean, we kind of got hints that she's going to, you know, you know, she's going to be the dogged reporter, right? And she's going to be this, the strong presence along with Superman. And they're going to be very much presented as equals in a certain manner speaking. And I'm paraphrasing there. Equals was kind of my term. That wasn't anything, something anybody said, but I sort of got that impression by what was said. And I'm kind of paraphrasing here. So I'm really interested to see how she's presented. 
But this kind of begs a couple of questions, doesn't it? Does this mean we're going to see Lex Luthor at some point? Because now we're slowly but surely introducing more and more Superman characters. And Lex has been talked about on the show. Even teased in a certain way. So you really feel like at some point Lex Luthor is going to make an appearance. I'm not saying it's going to be in this crossover, although... You never know, right? You'd think that's something they would they would have announced at San Diego Comic-Con, but they haven't really said much about the crossover. So let's not even rule that out yet. And then here's the other thing. And I know it's almost not worth talking about because I've said no a thousand times, but I'm bringing it up because fans are going to bring this up. Being in Gotham and having Superman there, in theory, I'm assuming that because part of this is going to be in Gotham, Superman will end up in Gotham at some point. It's only going to keep bringing fans back to the eventuality that we're getting Batman in the Arrowverse. And I know it's not going to happen. I know they've said no a thousand times. I get it. But at some point, you're teasing it without teasing it. And yes, you can go to Gotham without Batman. You can absolutely do that. But given the connection between Batman and Superman, how does Clark Kent, how does Superman... Go to Gotham and not mention Bruce Wayne and Batman at all. Is that going to happen? It just seems with the connection between those two characters, you cannot show up in Gotham without at least name-dropping the dude. I'm sorry. I, 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 I understand that this will never happen, or, or maybe it will. Maybe Gotham ending opens the door for that, but I know there's all kinds of legal jargon and technicalities going on in there. They keep this from happening. I totally understand all that behind-the-scenes stuff. But when you do stuff like this, and now you're finally going to Gotham City, you're going to get fans that wonder, is it finally going to happen at some point? Already, Batwoman's kind of opening the door for the Bat family of characters, right? And Ra's al Ghul kind of stepped through that door a long time ago on Arrow, but you could kind of explain that away, right? with Sarah Lance and everything like you can explain that away. But pretty soon they're not going to be able to explain away how Batman doesn't exist in the Arrowverse and it'd be very interesting to me to see how that is addressed at some point as long as these shows keep going because I think at some point it definitely will need to be addressed. Here's something that I find very very interesting once again kind of going along the TV realm. Jessica Jones's TV creator and showrunner Melissa Rosenberg is going to be leaving the show after season three, according to The Hollywood Reporter, who broke this news. Now, that might not be the big news because showrunners just tend to leave. And she even said, you know, she wanted to do other things. The thing that she's going to be doing, though, is signing a reported eight-figure overall deal with Warner Brothers Television to create and develop new projects. Here's the other little nugget in this, according to the report, is that Netflix did try to get her to stay. Not necessarily for Jessica Jones, it just has tried to get her to stay. So she has decided to leave Netflix, who has quite the history of success recently, for sure, to go to Warner Brothers. Now, other things that she's worked on other than Jessica Jones, in case you want to know, she's worked on Dexter. You might remember Allie McBeal. She also wrote the Twilight franchise, basically, for the film adaptations there. So, whether you love Twilight or not is irrelevant. That's just something very popular that she's worked on. Now, she says she wanted to do other things, and I understand that, but, I mean, was this Rosenberg kind of seeing the beginning of the end 
for Marvel on Netflix. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of Jessica Jones either. Maybe it continues on the Disney streaming streaming service. But when you do that, it's almost like a why not see that through and why not, you know, move over to Disney because you think the pay would be pretty good, right? You'd probably get about that anyway. Or maybe maybe she wouldn't. Maybe, maybe there is one of those things where she feels like this was a necessary change for herself and her career and where she wanted to go. And eight figures is nothing to sneeze at. And that's almost like a cup of coffee for Disney though. And kind of, I mean, for Warner Brothers too, really, but to a larger extent, Disney, because of all the properties they own and the fact that they're printing money right now from the MCU and the Pixar movies as well, you'd think that they could have found a place for her and paid her pretty well, but she's moving on to Warner Brothers. And there has to be a reason to that beyond that she just wanted to do other things because you can do other things in the same place, I would think. And the other thing is maybe Jessica Jones just gets wrapped up in a neat little bow as far as the storyline's concerned in season three. Maybe they're just done. I can't imagine because, I mean, the show's been very critically well-received, been one of my favorites, like number two right behind Daredevil, as a matter of fact. Although Luke Cage crept up in the last season because that was a really good season of Luke Cage, but I don't really want to get into the rankings thing right now. What I'm saying is, is that Jessica Jones has been very, very well done on Netflix. And I'm sure in, in no small part to what Melissa Rosenberg has done with that series. She's done a fantastic job and what she's created and the team she's put around her. Now from Warner Brothers perspective, you see that and you go, look what she's been able to do for those characters on that show. Not just Jessica Jones, but moving on from that and moving on like the Trish character and how we've got we've got Hellcat coming it looks like Patsy Walker is also another character that had very complex storyline in Jessica Jones I call her Patsy but you know you know you know where I'm going with that she had a very complex story and you could tell that there's spin-off possibilities there and in Warner Brothers has to see what Rosenberg's been able to do for female characters and male characters alike and villains too, for that matter, and go, we need to get her over here and try to do some of this stuff for us. I'm not even saying she's going to be involved in DC TV because I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case. But if she is, that is certainly something that could create a lot of interest. Maybe even this is something, maybe we see her working on stuff for DC Universe. This is an overall deal. So... Anything Warner Brothers television related, she could potentially work on. So I think once we get that first project announced for her, we'll understand what direction she's kind of headed. But I, I'm getting the impression that maybe maybe this was her wanting to dabble in more things than what Netflix wanted to use her for. So this is why she went to Warner Brothers to create a little bit more. Quickly, before we move on, I want to get into the James Bond news that's dropped. Danny Boyle no longer going to be directing Bond 25 due to creative differences. This was actually announced on the official, the official James Bond Twitter account, which stuff like this doesn't normally come from movie and shows official Twitter accounts. I mean, if you remember in interviews, he kept teasing that he had this idea for the movie. He never really revealed it because he said he'd be foolish to reveal it. So it must have been something... Really, really kind of out there and unique. And remember, this guy's got an Oscar pedigree, okay? Slumdog Millionaire, 127 Hours, movies that were very critically acclaimed. So, yeah, fans were kind of stoked to see what he was going to be doing with the Bond character. And now, I mean, will we ever know what his idea was? I'm guessing that, that 
you know, Boyle deciding to leave for creative differences, eventually he's going to spill what that is because I don't see him going back to Bond at any point now. I mean, you never close the door on stuff like this. I mean, years later, sure, that could happen, but how long does that idea stand? So it just, maybe they balked at that idea so hard or wanted to change it so much that he went, you know what? If we're not going to do this, then I don't want to do it at all. And it it almost seems like that's going to be the case. No real details released yet on this. So we'll try and keep you updated on that. And if you read an article that I had at downandnerdypodcast.com about how why Idris Elba was the best choice for the next James Bond after Daniel Craig, apparently that's not going to happen. So I'm I'm upset at this point. I mean, the report says he actually talked to Good Morning Good Morning Britain. When they asked him at the premiere for Yardy, which is his directorial debut, so congrats to Idris Elba on that, asked him if he was going to be the next Bond. He flat said no. Didn't really elaborate a whole lot, just said no. And and that's disappointing because I really do think he was the perfect choice. But, I mean, does this open the door now for Tom Hiddleston or, or Jamie Dornan, Henry Cavill? Is there somebody else? I mean, Tom Hardy, I guess, is another name that's been bantied about in this. It's going to be hard for me to now, I in my mind, settle for one of these guys because I kind of had my heart set on Idris Elba. I know a bunch of other fans did as well. And I guess we've got to move on at this point. For whatever reason, it's just not going to happen. I'm sure that we'll find out why at some point, but it's not happening, and now we're going to have to deal with it. And I'm sure that whoever gets the role will do a good job as well. Because obviously they did well with Daniel Craig when he was the choice. I was just looking forward to this happening. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to go into the world of DC superhero girls and find out how much things are going to be changing. We'll take you back to San Diego Comic-Con in the press room next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Shay Fontana, writer for DC Superhero Girls, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. In case you haven't heard, things are changing in the world of DC superhero girls. They will have a show coming up. On Cartoon Network premiere date, yet to be announced, but keep an eye on that. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to get into the press room at San Diego Comic-Con 2018 this year and talk to those involved with this reboot of DC Superhero Girls. And I'm so glad that we got to start with executive producer Lauren Faust. The first thing that I wanted to ask her is, is this a different feel for DC Superhero Girls without the original creator, Shea Fontana. So, is this kind of a little bit of a different feel for DC Superhero Girls? Now we have Shea Fontana, who's kind of not mm-hmm. involved with the shows. Are you guys going to be doing something a little bit differently, or is it kind of like business as usual now? It's actually quite a bit more than a little differently. It's pretty much a complete reboot. It's really kind of started from the ground up, just kind of wanted to refresh the whole band. We're still bringing over, you know, the idea of, you know, superhero, the themes of being a superhero, the themes of being teenagers, uh, the idea of you know all the female empowerment and, and positive stuff for girls—that's all being carried over. But the storylines are different, the characterizations are different. Like we have Wonder Woman, Supergirl, Batgirl, and Bumblebee, but very different personalities from the original series, uh, the original web series. So it's practically a complete reboot. The next question that was asked was, "What drew her attention to this project in the first place?" Back around 2011, 2012, I actually did some 
um, uh, web shorts for uh, Warner Brothers in DC called Super Best Friends Forever. Yes. 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 So that's kind of where this version of the show started with those web shorts. Um, and that featured Supergirl, Batgirl, and Wonder Girl, not Wonder Woman. But um, so uh, when they asked me to come back and take a look at DC Superhero Girls and were interested in the idea of kind of pulling the Super Best Friends Forever concepts and some of those themes and ideas and characterizations into this new version, I just immediately jumped on the opportunity because I enjoyed making those shorts so much. But even, but even then, when I made those shorts, it was just, you know, I... I just love superheroes and, you know, having worked on Powerpuff Girls in the past and growing up reading lots of comics and getting to the chance to get my hands on these iconic, amazing characters was like, I mean, how can you say no? My next question to executive producer of DC Superhero Girls, Lauren Faust, was what is it like having a cast who is already familiar with these characters from the previous version and other roles as well. Well, you get to work with an equally amazing cast that matches up to those characters. What's it like having Greg Griffin, having Tara Strong, they're already familiar with these characters and able to just jump right in with kind of little direction, I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, I've worked with Greg and Tara like forever Many other times. projects. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, uh, those were just no-brainers for me. Um, and, I mean, they're just so talented. You're right. I mean, I don't have to give them very much direction. I give them general ideas and then they hit it out of the park. Um, and I'd say the same with the rest of the cast. Nicole Sullivan, who's here today, plays Supergirl. The same thing. She's fantastic. And and when you work with talented people like that, you know, you, you tell them what you want and then you also get what they bring to the table. And like as you work with them more and more, you start learning their idiosyncrasies and what they bring to the character and then what ends up on the page. And ultimately on the screen is a collaboration between the creative team, the writers and the artists but also the voice actors as I know well. how attached the Tara is to that Batgirl character too. She hands will hold on to it with both hands. Yeah, so. yeah, but like how many different versions of Batgirl exactly. has she yeah. done, yeah. you know? And I don't know how she keeps track <laughs> of how many Batgirls she's done yeah. and how many Harleys she's done, exactly. right? Yeah, <laughs> Next, Lauren was asked what her goals were for the series, and I thought the answer was really interesting. I think far too often when people make stuff for girls, it's less about inspiring them and less about about entertaining them, less about like reflecting their own experiences back to them, and all too often it's about telling them how we expect them to behave. You know, and I hate that, and I don't want to do that. So our show, what we're doing with our show is we're trying to reflect their experiences back to them, but in a super lens. So uh, like a lot of shows about superheroes, teenage superheroes, they usually start with the usual teenage plot. Who's the bad guy? What's the bad guy doing? And how do we save the day? And then they put a teenage spin on it. They go like, what do the teenage, how would a teenager handle that? We're gonna have stories like that, but the bulk of our stories are the opposite. What is something that a teenager goes through? What is something that a young woman, like a, a coming of age story and experience that they have? And how can we reflect those feelings and experiences and emotions through a super lens. So like dealing with something that uh, kids might deal with today, like we have an episode um, featuring uh, Livewire that's about online gossip. Right. Yeah, so. that's very <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So like it, it, it's it's a big superhero fight 
right. but underneath it all it's about being embarrassed about what somebody's saying about you online so like a lot of our stories are, are, are a little bit more like that than it is about lime wires trying to steal this and we gotta stop her you know it's more about she's embarrassing us and how are we going to deal with this you know next up it was Nicole Sullivan who's gonna be playing Supergirl on this version of DC Superhero Girls so the first thing I wanted to ask her was why she thinks Supergirl is such a great character. So, Nicole, you've done a lot of, of voice acting, playing a lot of great characters over the year. What makes Supergirl an especially great character for you? Uh, what I love about Supergirl is this world they live in where they're, you know, they have these you know, dual lives. So they're each other's friends, only know, they're the only ones who know each other's real, you know, names and, and status and such. And so what it shows to me is like, in high school, like you're you're trying to be one person, but you're kind of this other different person with your friends, and who Supergirl is with her friends, and in, she's one of the ones that she's sort of the same. Like she's like she just can't hide who she is. Like she she tries to play the good girl, but it's just not it's not a part she's she's very good at. Um, she's got a chip on her shoulder, and she sort of goes through life, you know, swinging and, and you know, super pissed that her cousin's more famous than she is, and uh, you know she's like I do the same. Stuff he does. How come, he, how come he's famous? So she's trying to prove herself, and um, it's really fun. And she gets to be really sarcastic with her friends, and she she loves them to death. But she'll take them down in a second if they're if they're being weird. In case you didn't know, Nicole Sullivan is the mother of two boys. So it was asked if she hopes that this show influences how young boys actually treat young girls. I think that's really interesting. I think I think, and again, I'm no sociologist. I think the way to get respect is to demand respect, and. Um, um, you start there. Now, it doesn't mean everyone's going to necessarily chime in and do the thing they're supposed to do, but you, you have to own it first. You have to show people what you deserve, and then they can either do it or not do it. And I think that's what these girls do. They show up, they put up their, their good fighters, their good friends, their great superheroes. And people can come, they, they can agree with them or not agree with them, they can come at them or not come at them, but, uh, and I think that's what I would like to teach my boys too, is like, you gotta take their lead. If they're saying, you know, if they're this kind of person and they want to be treated that way, you can either do it or leave them alone. But you can't, the option is not to undermine somebody, not to undermine a woman. My next question, I felt like it was an important one, and I asked Nicole if she feels like this show kind of shatters the just for girls stereotype. There's sort of a stereotype involved with the show. Now. It, it, it appears for some people that the show is just for girls, but it's really not. So right. How do you feel like this show shatters that stereotype and is really for boys and girls? The same way that any of those boys shows would have done it in the past. You know, even Teen Titans Go. You know, was very much a boy centric, male humor type thing. You know, the main guys. Uh, and then you sort of watch it and you go, Oh, that's I. Told this is funny, I get it, I understand these characters, you know. Uh, in the same, you know, you just show up and you make funny jokes, and you tell good stories, and you have a lot of good fight scenes, and then the boys come. Jokes and fights, right? That's what my kids like. Yeah, it's all girls and boys want, I think. And then girls kind of want cute dresses and some fun, and some and some little, you know, little hair talk on the, on the side. This isn't Nicole Sullivan's first time playing Supergirl, so the question was asked of her was that did she make any adjustments from the previous time that she'd voiced the character? This was so, I, easier is not the right word because it wasn't hard before, but this is 
this one's so this Supergirl, this incarnation that they created is so much more me. Um, I loved the other one too, and she was sort of funny and weird and quirky and all that stuff. Um, but this Supergirl's a lot more just like. I'm sorry, what'd you say? <laughs> like, you know, like, she's just a lot more like kicks butt. And um, as far as vocally, the the one we did, because I, I didn't do the middle one. I mean, I may I might be getting my information wrong, but I did one that was like eight, ten years ago. And then there was one in between that I didn't do. And then and the one in between was like sweet, and I, they don't hire me for that usually very often. <laughs> I'm never like the, I'm no Cinderella. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. She go, yeah, I, that's more my, my wheelhouse. So, but between the first one I did originally and this one, uh, it was campier, and I love doing campy stuff. But this one's much more realistic, and uh, so it's a lot more just sort of my voice, but pitched up for age. So the cast really wasn't allowed to say a whole lot about the show, but I had to ask Nicole Sullivan if she had any favorite interactions that Supergirl had with any of the other characters on the show. Do you have a favorite interaction from the show with Supergirl interacting with a specific character on the show, whether it be hero or villain? Well, there's one episode again. I'm, I'm like, I'm so they get so. You're not allowed to say any story points, but there's one where Wonder Woman seems to have lost, not lost her mind literally, but like is acting in a way that we don't understand, and everyone else is sort of dancing around it. I'm like, no, 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 seriously, she's lost her mind. Like, that, that's one of my favorite episodes we've recorded thus far. You know, I also had to ask her if her kids think it's cool that she's playing Supergirl. So is the cool factor still there with the kids? With the kids oh, no, there's no, oh, zero. Well, <laughs> no. Nope. Zero cool factor. We tried to get them to wear Supergirl shirts. They're like, what? Uh-huh. No. Yeah, no, they, there's zero, zero of that. Next up, it is always fun to talk to Gray Griffin about anything, especially when she's playing Wonder Woman. And I asked her, you know, since she's been in both versions of DC Superhero Girls now, were there any differences in these versions? So we were talking to Lauren earlier, and she said that this show is kind of a complete reboot, but you're no stranger to the show already. So were there any differences for you in this current version of DC Superhero Girls? I was so glad to be brought back for this version because there were some people that they didn't bring the same characters back. And, I, and so I was like, I'm always ready for the chopping block to, you know, happen. Um, I've been doing Wonder Woman now for, what I don't know, like a long time, 10 years or something. So um, so I'm always happy when it gets to come back. But this version um, is, well, I loved that short that they did initially, that Super Best Friends Forever. And people were always asking me about it at conventions. And so I kept thinking, like, they need to make a show of that. People still talk about that. And it was so long ago. And I love Lauren. You know, I've worked with her. I worked with her on Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends ages ago and just, like, lots of things. And so I'm just such a fan of her work. And I loved those character designs. So when I found out that they were taking a lot of that stuff over to this new thing. I was very excited. Um, and in this version, Wonder Woman kind of honors her heritage a little bit more with her Themyscira. She's got a little bit of a Mediterranean accent, and so I kind of, kind of, I'm Mexican, so I kind of channeled some of my cousins, and you know, just put a little bit of a, it, it sounds, it's very close to a Latin accent, but it's a little bit different. Um, and and she's very passionate, you know, but she's also dealing with a little bit of culture, culture shock, you know. And um, so, yeah, but and, and, and she gets her first crush in this. Like, she, Ooh. it's kind of fun to uh, see her be uh, not only layering on the fish out of water, culture differences, and then also a crush. It's like, it's very funny. It looks like there's going to definitely be a focus on Themyscira, or at least her background there in this version of DC Supergirl. So someone asked Gray Griffin 
what it was like to focus on that stuff a little bit more this time around. I love the Themyscira stuff. It's so fun to see where she grew up and like um, just her family and why she is the way she is. So I'm kind of glad that they're um, incorporating some of that more this time. Um, but it does, and I'm glad also that they're not focusing so much on school in this one. It's it's a lot more about their adventure. Like they are in high school, but it's not the other one. It was very very school oriented and like stuff at school and you know the, the principal and all that. This is more about their lives, their double life. You know, they're they, they are high schoolers, but they're they focus a lot more on their hero antics, which I love. My next question to Greg Griffin was: Do you feel like Wonder Woman is yours? Does she kind of hold on to the character? And I thought her answer was pretty great. Speaking of. Tara, I know that she kind of hangs on. God, to the Tara again! Oh well, my God! When I, was, when I was talking to her last I'm totally year, kidding. when I was talking to her last yeah. year, she, there's characters like Batgirl and Harley, especially. She hangs on to those. I mean, she, gets, she actually gets mad when somebody. Else gets <laughs> so, do you feel like you're kind of earning that right with Wonder Woman? Because I think you certainly have. Oh, you said this one's mine, and no, no one else can have no, it. No, I actually don't feel that way. I mean, I there's I I love actors getting work. You know, it's so hard for us. You know, I mean, people. I know. I mean. It's not like we're not like there are people that have it much harder. But you know, with acting, you know, you you work every day auditioning, 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 and you don't get paid for that. You only get paid for whatever twentieth thing or you know sometimes the hundredth thing that you have auditioned for, and then you get to have that prize. So when other people get it, it's always an honor to share. Like I love Susan Eisenberg so much, who also plays Wonder Woman. Her voice is just like velvet. I remember the first time I heard her speak, I was like, it, it shook me in my boots. I didn't even know she was Wonder Woman. I was like, oh my gosh, her voice is beautiful. And she was like, thank you. And then. Somebody, I was like, what does she do? And they're like, she's Wonder Woman. I was like, oh, of course she is. That's, oh, my God. You know, and so when I got Wonder Woman, it was a while back, but I felt kind of funny about it because I really love her. So I actually wrote to her and said, like, you know, I, I, I tweeted something about playing Wonder Woman, and then she liked it. So I was like, Phew. you know, because I, I love yes. her. I don't want to piss her off. You know, no. I definitely want to. I, I don't mind sharing more work for everybody, and I... More the merrier. <laughs> Finally got a chance to talk to Jen Kluska, who's the director of this version of DC Superhero Girls on Cartoon Network. And I had to ask her, what's it like balancing something new for this show, but also honoring what was built in the existing brand? So we know that Lauren said this is going to be kind of a complete reboot of the series. And she was also talking about how when they decided to make the transition from Wonder Girl to Wonder Woman, that was kind of because there was already an existing brand. So what was it like working with that existing brand and saying, well, we want to do some different things, but we know we have to do certain things as well. Yeah, I mean, it's we definitely want to stay true to the spirit of the existing brand, which is all about, you know, girls and, and you know, them being empowered by their, you know, by their powers and their secret identities. But at the same time, we wanted to really sort of carve a new path and really play with different themes. Um, so, and, you know, and also, we're also inheriting a lot of amazing DC characters who have their own legacy and their own canon which we also want to be true to so it's a really fine balance of finding you know the types of characters and the character arcs that are going to tell the types of stories that Lauren wants to tell that she thinks are you know important and thematic and true to what it is to be you know a young girl but also pays you know tribute to these not only the characters that we've inherited from the original show but the characters we've inherited you know on a larger sense from DC both who they were originally but also the new characters who are new to our show specifically. There was actually talk about Livewire a little bit earlier, so now that we've heard about Livewire, and she's going to talk a little bit more about that as well, what other villains can we expect on the show? Livewire, you know, she's a Superman villain originally, and she's a shock jock. She goes back to the, you know, I think Boost Him, the cartoon was her first appearance. Yep. So we're thinking, like, well, what 
what's the new teen angle on that? So, you know, we want her to be, you know, she's a villain, she's one of our bullies, you know, whereas Giganta is the bully who might pound your face in. Livewire is going to kill your soul. Mm -hmm. She's going to be just really cruel, like verbally. Um, so, you know, what's, and what's the modern teen angle of that? So instead of making her a shock jock, we gave her her, she, you know, she's got a media channel on something, you know, like a video platform that she uses to embarrass her victims. Um, so things like that are you know, where we're looking to, you know, evolve the characters in a way which is more reflective of the way that teens might experience, you know, bullying and harassment and also, you know, that's works in our new world. The villains are basically led by Catwoman. She's the brains behind the situation. She won't, you know, sully herself with actual physical fighting, but she's got these other girls to do it for her. Uh, we've got, again, we mentioned Giganta. She's the muscle. Um, Livewire, she's in the same way that as a girl, she is. She's the gossip. She's the. Uh, she's the, the YouTuber. She's spiky. She's hard. So she's. You know. She's the electric villain. It, thematically, it, it works. We also have Poison Ivy. She's the waif. She's the recluse. As a teen, we always say that she's kind of like, you know, the the uh, you know Breakfast Club Ali Sheedy hair in the face. You know, possibly talking to a potted plant. You know, <laughs> uh, sort of character. We have um, Star Sapphire. She's our Green Lantern uh, villain. Uh, you know, her backstory is that she was, you know, the girlfriend of Hal Jordan. So we're playing her basically as the crazy ex-girlfriend. Oh, uh, oh, she's she's super fun. So all of her powers are very much built around love and loving, but she will kill you with it. And then finally, we have uh, Harley Quinn, who is just the maniac. She's completely unpredictable. You never quite know what she's going to do, and she's definitely the wild card, literally and figuratively. Based on an answer, it made me wonder. You know, in previous versions, the villains were kind of mixed in with the heroes, so I had to ask Jen Kluska, you know, the, about the decision to kind of make them two separate versions in this version of DC Superhero Girls. In the oh, previous sorry. version of DC Superhero Girls, it was sort of everybody in the pool. I mean, you yes. had Gorilla Grodd was the principal, and yes. all the villains kind of coming. Like, talk about the decision to kind of separate those two pieces and, and do that for this version of the show. Well, I mean, what Lauren always keeps on saying is this is a show about balancing your teen life and your super life. And that's really a mirror for, you know, when you're coming of age as a young girl, like when you hit that, you know, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16 age where you don't quite know who you're going to be yet. You're still almost deciding in a way. And you're often you're different, you know, around one group, like say your parents, your teachers, and you're sure. with your friends. And so what Lauren really wants to, you know, communicate is like when you're with your friends, that's almost like what's, that's your true self. So bring back the idea of superpowers. A, it's really fun because, it, you know, secret identities are fun. You have to keep them secret. Sure, yeah. um, and it creates an, an extra level of suspense and drama. But also it's a really nice metaphor for deciding and figuring out who it is you really want to be. And everything in the show we're trying to do is goes back to these big thematic, you know, choices and decisions about like what it is to be a girl at this age. Ever since the DC superhero girls started with Shay Fontana, I was so excited to see DC taking the initiative to do something for young girls and even just young kids in general to to spotlight these female heroes and do something for the younger generation to really get the them hooked on the characters that we got hooked on when we were kids as well and, and guiding them into eventually becoming fans of the characters in their young adult years and as teenagers and, and things of that nature. So when I found out that there was going to be a reboot of DC Superhero Girls without Shea Fontana, I'll be honest, I was definitely hesitant about the idea, but after talking to Lauren Faust and, and those involved in this project... 
they really seem to have a cool idea and a great concept, as you heard, for the future now of DC superhero girls. And and it and certainly seems like they're not going to throw away what's already with the groundwork that's already been been laid there, but just expanding on that and maybe aging the show up just a bit. We'll keep you posted for sure when DC Superhero Girls will be premiering on Cartoon Network. Um, Maybe you saw the short at the beginning of the Teen Titans Go movie as well. I heard that that was great. So big things coming for DC Superhero Girls. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the director, the executive producer, the cast of DC Superhero Girls for joining me this week. You want more information on the show, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find past shows, new articles that are being written up there as well. Very, very different stuff. You want to check that out. Also, make sure you're following us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, also at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine. Coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.